Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for June 30th, 2021. Bit of a smaller week this week, and this tends to happen when there's a fifth Wednesday in the month. Uh, a lot of publishers will sometimes take advantage and use it to put out specials and annuals, and that's kind of what DC did yesterday. There was only four DC books that uh, were released, they, and they were all oversized, uh, especially the the Green Arrow issue was um, like 100 pages, uh, the 80th anniversary. So it, it was huge. The Infinite Frontier Secret Files also had a lot of stories, and there was a, a Catwoman annual and a Teen Titans annual. And that, as always, we covered it in depth in our DC Spotlight. So head over to the Comic Boom YouTube channel or uh, check it out on the podcast Remember, the DC spotlights that come out on Tuesdays do have spoilers. Uh, but the Wednesday new comic book day uh, episode that's I'm about to record for you right now, <laughs> if you're listening to this, uh, is spoiler-free. So I'm going to talk about a few of the books that I had a chance to read already. Um, mostly Marvel. Well, I guess four Marvel books, one Aftershock, and a couple of Image titles uh, that I'm going to mention uh, and there's a couple other titles that I think are definitely worth your time as well that I'm planning on picking up that I haven't gotten a chance to read yet. Uh, so I'll give it a rundown at the end of some other books that you may want to be on the lookout for. But let me kick it off with Black Widow. This has been uh, a really, and this is issue number eight. And it's been a really great title since it first started. Um, I've, I've never been the biggest Black Widow fan, but Kelly Thompson has made me a huge Black Widow fan. Uh, at least the way that she writes her. And much like what Kelly is doing with Captain Marvel, I just feel like she understands the character and gives Natasha a voice that is more realistic and believable than any previous creator that I've read who's done Black Widow. And it's really quite something. Um, and I should mention, in addition to Kelly Thompson as a writer, we have Elena Casagrande doing the pencils. And for this particular issue, she's joined by Rafael Della Torre. Inks by Elisabetta D'Amico and Rafael Della Torre. Colors are by Jordi Belair. And then letters are by Corey Petit. And Adam Hughes does the covers for uh, this book. And he's been getting a lot of uh, recognition lately for those covers. And rightly so, because uh, they're pretty they're pretty amazing. Uh, and then just recently, we had a variant cover revealed on Twitter uh, by Mark Brooks, which is really amazing, too. It's a kind of a Black Widow dressed as Captain America type um, mashup. Absolutely fantastic. Looks great. Um, but anyway, getting back to Black Widow number eight, kind of what I love about what Kelly Thompson has done, you know, with that first arc, sort of establishing a, a real life for Natasha, something she never had never really wanted um, living in San Francisco. She'd been brainwashed. She was living in San Francisco. She thought she was an architect. There was this whole life, this past that she had lived where she'd met this guy, fell in love, had a baby, and she was just living that, that quiet life. And here's the crazy thing about it. She wasn't necessarily rejecting it. You know, it wasn't like her psyche was saying, no, this isn't your life. This isn't what you want. Um, and you kind of wonder if, you know, although there were some cracks that started to show and part of that had to do with Hawkeye and Winter Soldier kind of hunting her down, 
as well as her uh, her friend Yelena Belova, who's the White Widow. Uh, what if none of those friends of hers had showed up? Would she have kind of broken out of the spell on her own? Um, because that's something she's still tr- struggling with. And we saw, and it was a brutal cliffhanger from Kelly Thompson and the rest of the creative crew. It appeared that uh, Black Widow's husband and son, um, James and Stevie, had had died. Um, but come to find out, they didn't. Um, it was basically a ruse to throw off the villains that had brainwashed Natasha in the first place. And being that she's who she is, being that she's the Black Widow, her uh, her son Stevie and her husband James would never be safe if anybody thought that they were alive because they would try to get to Natasha through them. And so, you know, these are feelings that she's still struggling with. The love that she had for those two and um, the fact that she had to send them away and she knows she's never going to be able to see them again. She's really struggling with that. And there's a, a scene in this particular issue where she kind of addresses that. And uh, I'm glad that uh, Kelly hasn't just swept it under the rug or hasn't uh, forgotten about it because it's so interesting that she chose to start off the series by having Black Widow in that situation, in a situation she's never been before. And despite the fact that it's, you know, the first story arc and it's sort of resolved, it's, it's not resolved. The, the consequences of it, the fallout of it are not resolved at all. And that's something Natasha is going to have to deal with. And I won't get into details because again, we don't want to spoil, but the conversation that Natasha has with the white widow and the things that Natasha sort of ruminates on are, are incredible. Uh, I think they're incredibly insightful from Kelly Thompson into examining the Black Widow, examining Natasha Romanov in a way that she hasn't been examined before. And it's another one of those situations where you kind of wonder, well, how come nobody has done this before? Natasha being an orphan, the way she was raised, what her life was, the idea of giving her a family and then having it taken away, regardless of the circumstances, is feels like a very real thing to do with Natasha. Um, I won't go so far as to say an obvious thing to do, but it makes for some really compelling stories because of the emotion that it evokes in Natasha. And it's, it's an area of the character that hasn't been explored before. And so you, I do find myself wondering why nobody has thought of it before. So I give Kelly Thompson all the credit in the world for, uh, for exploring that. Um, all that being said, the actual, main part of the story with uh, the black widow and the white widow um, who have kind of befriended this girl who uh, Lucy, who has these powers that she was given by this cult leader. And uh, they're just trying to do what they do. They're just trying to give back a little bit. Natasha's trying to be a little more um, active in her community and the place she lives and help those that need help rather than, uh, you know, be part of the Avengers and, and face these big, you know, universe or world ending events. She, and, and I feel like this has a lot to do with her emotions being raw and having lost her son and her husband. She wants to do something that she feels matters to people, right? That's that she feels more of an emotional connection to. So again, something that makes sense. Um, and, and a, a very 
realistic voice and outlook for who Natasha is in the hands of, of Kelly Thompson. So despite all this kind of emotion and, and sort of analysis and exploration of who Natasha is as a, as a person that, that feels fresh and is absolutely uh, very much um, a breath of fresh air, I guess you'd say a, a different take on, on Natasha and very welcome in my mind. Um, it, this is still a Black Widow book, right? So it's still Elena Casagrande giving us fantastic art, joined by Raphael Delatore in this issue. And um, you can tell which pages Elena does and which pages Raphael does, but it's not super jarring. Um, but it is action-packed. There's there's plenty of action. There's plenty of that whole idea of, of spy intrigue and, and whatnot in this issue. So if that's what you love out of your Captain America book or your Black Widow book, rather um, it's here. There's plenty of action. There's plenty of fast paced um, fight scenes and whatnot. And, and great dialogue from Kelly Thompson. This book is beautifully colored and has been from the very beginning by Jordi Belair, a little bit of a, a muted palette, which kind of suits the street level story that uh, Kelly Thompson is trying to, to tell here. So yeah, I mean, this is a great book. It's up there with, as one of the best books Marvel's putting out. Um, definitely in the top five, you know, along with also by Kelly Thompson, Captain Marvel, probably Immortal Hulk, um, Daredevil. Uh, those would probably be four of the, the top five. Not sure what the last one would be. Uh, might change <laughs> depending on what day you ask me, but uh, Black Widow belongs up there for sure. So fantastic job. Really great, uh, great issue. Really digging uh, Black Widow. It's never a, a, a title that I thought I would be picking up on a regular basis. Uh, but then again, neither Spider-Woman by Carla Pajeko. There's your number five, by the way. Uh, Spider-Woman is excellent as well. Uh, anyway, on to another of those aforementioned uh, Marvel top five. It's Daredevil by Chip Zdarsky. Mike Hawthorne handles the pencils in this issue. Adriana D. Benedetto is uh, the inker and Marce Marcio Menez handles the colors. So uh, we saw last time Daredevil was almost killed and he was offered a deal. Basically they think that some of the prisoners in the same prison that Matt Murdock is, or Daredevil, I should say is imprisoned in maybe losing their lives because they're being forced to do this uh, illegal, like slave labor, uh, legal prison labor. So, uh, Matt has agreed to help, but not because of the reason they're offering him. Like they're saying, hey, you're Daredevil. You don't belong in prison. You're punishing yourself and you shouldn't. And do this deal, help us out, and we'll let you out. And Daredevil has rejected that deal, but he's going to help him out anyway because he thinks it's the right thing to do. Um, so it, I've been struggling with Matt's decision. Uh, just like all the rest of his friends and, and everybody that he talks to, even, even other prisoners, you know, they're like, why wouldn't you get out if you could get out? Uh, I, I've talked extensively in the past about how Chip Zdarsky seems to be retreading some ground here. You know, we've seen Daredevil in prison before. We've seen Matt Murdock in prison before. Um, but Zdarsky's doing it in such a way that it still feels new, feels different. He's bringing a lot of emotion to it and a lot of uh, angst. And so it really works, despite the fact that it, it may be sort of 
a storyline we've seen before. So this issue is a little bit of setup. We uh, again, it's lockdown part one. And so I feel like Chip is sort of moving the different players around and giving us kind of the status quo. We see that Matt is going to take on this this uh, mission, I guess you'd call it, or task that uh, the powers that be have asked him to, but in a different way than maybe they would have uh, expected him to. And it, it feels like he's he's turned a corner. Meanwhile, we saw Bullseye escape from the Kingpin's custody, that storyline is starting to pick up steam. We, we know Elektra it had agreed to uh, take on the mantle of Daredevil and protect Hell's Kitchen in Matt's absence. And uh, she's got a little girl sidekick that accidentally killed somebody last issue. And she's dealing with that. So Elektra is trying to, to communicate with her and explain to her, um, but, you know, Electra's not exactly the, a mother figure, you know, not, not exactly a person who maybe should be raising a, a young uh, a young daughter and be influencing somebody. So um, there's a lot of different plot threads, a lot of different stories going on. I, I had mentioned that it, this book is starting to feel like we're building up to something. And I, I want to say it's issue 50, but again, that's like 19 issues away. So over a year away. Um so maybe it'll happen sooner than that. I'm just not sure. But what I know is this book is always emotional, really fast paced. And uh, I really did enjoy this issue because I felt like for the first time in a while, despite the fact that Matt is green and wants to stay behind bars because he feels that he owes a debt, that we're starting to get a Matt or a daredevil back that I can understand and relate to now that he's accepted this mission. It feels like he has purpose again. And it, it, it brings something to Matt as a character um, as opposed to the passive mission that he, um, that he agreed or that he undertook, which was basically I killed somebody. I need to go to prison. Um, and then once he's in prison, then, okay, well now what, right? Like you've accomplished your mission. You're just going to be a passive character in your own title. Well, no, he's not. Um, he's going to he's going to try to get to the bottom of how these prisoners are dying and, and why they're dying and what what this rumored prison labor is, basically. So. Uh, all right. Well, moving on to the next one. It's giant size, amazing Spider-Man chameleon conspiracy. Number one, say that five times fast. Uh, it's from writer Nick Spencer and Ed Brisson. We have Marcelo Ferreira, Carlos Gomez, Z. Carlos, and Iguara on pencils. Wayne Fokker, Carlos Gomez, Z. Carlos, and Iguara on inks. Andrew Crosley, Maury Hollowell, and Rachel Rosenberg on colors. And then Joe Caramagna letters the whole thing. So uh, if you didn't hear, Nick Spencer is leaving Amazing Spider-Man. Um, and they're bringing on like four or five different writers to take his place. So I think Ed Brisson is just here to help nick sort of wrap everything up and keep him on track um and the other part of this new spider team that's coming on amazing spider-man i th i don't think artists were announced i think it's going to be the same group of artists um and i'll talk about the art in a second but with this new team coming on what they're also doing is they're going to three times a month i gotta say i'm not a big fan I'm not even a fan of double shipping. I'm not even a fan of two issues a month. Give me one issue and make it really good and I'll be happy. 
three issues a month. I, I don't understand. It almost feels like Marvel is jealous of DC and their highly numbered action comics and detective comic series. And they want to catch up. So, you know, if they do three issues a month for a couple of years, they'll be right up there. But I, it just, it feels like you're, you're bilking your, I'm not bilking is the wrong word because you're still getting something, but it feels like you're asking too much from the readership. You know, I mean, this is Marvel's biggest character. You know, the argument could be made. So uh, yeah, it, it doesn't feel right. But what I will say about the art and we see it here in this issue, this art team is the same team that we've seen on the, the regular amazing Spider-Man title or last couple issues and they do a good job of making the art feel very seamless. It's hard to tell, okay, what did one person draw and what did another one draw? It's a little bit uh, reminiscent of Mark Bagley's style, um, but it's, it definitely is not Mark Bagley. It's not up to that, that quality. It's not quite as kinetic, but it does feel, it, it feels solid. It feels consistent. Um, despite the fact that you have so many different people on the art team. So I give them a lot of credit for uh, putting together a book uh, visually that looks pretty consistent. As far as the story goes, um, you know, here I'm, I'm talking about doing three issues, but this isn't even a regular issue of Amazing Spider-Man. It's a special. And it's like, I don't know how much time or how much notice Nick Spencer got that he was going to be leaving the book because I've talked extensively about how he has what feels like a hundred different plot threads going at once. So I'm not surprised they needed, Hey, let's put out a, a special 36 page uh, chameleon conspiracy special that, that wraps up that story. So in, in the regular book, I think they need to wrap up the kindred storyline. That's the one that really more than anything needs to be finished off. Cause I don't know. I don't think you can continue that storyline once Spencer leaves. I, I, cause I should also mention, and this gets a little spoilery, um, but it was announced in, in Marvel's press release or whatever. When this other uh, team, I think it's like five writers uh, takes over amazing Spider-Man. Uh, you're going to have somebody taking over as an amazing Spider-Man behind the mask as well. Uh, we're finally going to get Ben Riley as Spider-Man. Um, like, what was rumored in the, the clone saga all those many years ago. Um, it's not going to be Peter Parker under the mask anymore. It's going to be Ben Riley. So um, that's a pretty big change. But if it is Ben Riley, who is, has not lived the life that Peter has lived, how do you, why would he care about the kindred? He, the kindred, uh, you know, which is supposedly um, Harry Osborne, like, it wouldn't have as much power over Ben Riley because that personal connection is not there. So I, I feel like the, um, I feel like the kindred storyline definitely needs to be wrapped up when, uh, when Nick Spencer leaves the book. So, uh, but as far as this issue, like I said, it's the end of the com chameleon conspiracy storyline, but just like Nick Spencer always does there, there are some remaining questions. Um, we don't get all the answers to what was going on. Uh, although we do get a hint of what's to come, I guess, in the regular book. So it, it works. It feels like uh, an exercise issue of the regular series. Um, but it also doesn't necessarily feel like 
we had to have this story. And again, it goes back to the timing and wondering when did Nick Spencer know he easily could have cut this stuff out or not even had this storyline with uh, Pete's lab partner creating a, a basically a crystal ball that allows them to see into the future. You could have skipped that, but maybe it was a way to bring Ned leads back and that's what they wanted to do. Uh, I'm not really sure as far as this, this, you know, the story, it does feel like a classic Spider-Man story with the chameleon and um, chance and the foreigner and silver sable makes an appearance and whatnot. So um, jack-o'-lantern as well uh, slide, you know, these are classic Spider-Man characters. So in that way it works, but was it the best use of the real estate? Again, we don't know what Nick Spencer knew and when he knew it, but uh, I will say that it, it felt pretty classically Spider-Man. And I did very much enjoy the story, even though we didn't get answers to all the questions that Nick Spencer posed, which is a very Nick Spencer th sort of thing to do. Um, and then the art, yeah, it's pretty solid, especially for considering all these creators that worked on it. If you look really hard, you can see the differences in the art and uh, in the coloring and, and the ink lines and whatnot. Um, letterer Joe Caramondi does a good job though, because it is a dialogue heavy book. Obviously it's an expensive book, so it's going to be dialogue heavy. He does keep it moving along uh, at a pretty fast pace, especially because like I said, it's like a, a double size issue. I mean, it's 45 pages uh, or right around there, maybe 40 pages if you subtract the covers and whatnot. Um, so it's a solid issue. I am enjoying Amazing Spider-Man. I'm very curious to see what this new creative team does and how it all works with Ben Riley under the mask instead of uh, Peter Parker how well that'll work um, remains to be seen. Uh, all right, on to the last Marvel book that I'm going to talk about. And this is actually my book of the week. Well, I'll say my co, my 1A book of the week, because the other one is is just slightly under, but I got to, it's, it's so close. I've got to give it book of the week as well. But uh, the first one that I'll give a, a shout out to, it was, it was the one that I read first of the two, and it really impressed me and it was very emotional and it's the United States of Captain America. There's two stories. Uh, the first one is you brought two too many written by Christopher Cantwell art is by Dale Eaglesham. Second one is called tracks by Josh Trujillo art by uh, Jan Basildua. color in both stories is by Matt Miller letters are by Joe Caramagna. And I, again, I can't spoil I don't want to spoil too much, but we already know, and Christopher Cantwell has basically said that this is a story, it's a road trip story with Cap going out on the road and discovering that there's this sort of network or community or um, just these people that are taking on the mantle of Captain America, different sorts of people from all walks of life that have been inspired by what what Captain America has done by what Steve Rogers has done over the years. And they're taking it upon themselves to, to put on the, the Captain America uh, costume, you know, whether it's just the, the stars and stripes or, uh, you know, someone inspired by him or, or whatever, their own homemade costumes and, and protect the people that need to be protected, help keep the American dream alive. And uh, it, again, we meet one of them here, Aaron, uh, I think it's Aaron, Taylor, I think is his name. Um, and he's just, he's very Aaron Fisher. That's his name. Sorry. Um, 
he, he's very inspiring. Um, and uh, Cap and the Falcon come around to his his side pretty quickly um, and are very impressed by him. And uh, the second story is basically a story that that's focused on him and, and sort of tells his origin of of why he took up the mantle of of Captain America and uh, how much he loves what Cap stands for. And it, again, it's just very, very inspiring. But what really brings this book home for me and makes it my book of the week is the voice that Christopher Cantwell gives to Steve Rogers, gives to Captain America, where he's reconciling the the inherent problems that Captain America sort of symbolizes, you know, and it's a lot of it has to do with isolationism and um, nationalism, which is a big thing right now in the United States. Jingoism is another word for it. You know, just if you're xenophobic, you're against immigrants, you're against people that aren't like you. Um, you know, white supremacy is another thing that's um, that's reared its ugly head. And, and what Cantwell does is he lets us know that Steve Rogers is aware of these things. He understands how easy it is for himself as Captain America for what the symbols that he uses and what he stands for to be co-opted by people who, who don't really embody the best values of America, which is, you know, freedom of choice and freedom of speech and being able to do what you want to do. And uh, the biggest part in not taking those things too far, because I think that's what everybody thinks when they think of America. And then what we've seen recently is people taking that to the other extreme and saying, I'm not going to wear a mask or I'm not going to try to get along with people because I'm putting my freedom above everything. And there's a problem with that. And that's kind of what Steve Rogers is showing us that he's aware of, right? It's okay to want your freedom and be able to uh, express your ideas, but you have to remember that you, you've got to do that in such a way that it doesn't harm others because you're part of something that's bigger than yourself. And I think that second part is what's been lost lately. So yes, it's great to have the freedom to not wear a mask, but you're harming other people when you're doing that. Uh, it's great to have the freedom of speech, but as long as that speech doesn't harm others, as long as, as long as it's not inciting violence or, you know, as long as it's not hate speech or, or it's condemning somebody else. Uh, and, and that's kind of what Steve is saying here. And then that's reinforced later in the issue when he meets Aaron Fisher and finds out about this sort of underground network of, of Captain America's and uh, he's going to go on the road and, and meet a lot of them. And I'm, I'm, I'm hundred percent there for it. So, you know, Christopher Catwell is a writer whose work I've, I've come to love over the last couple of years and uh, I think he did a great job with Dr. Doom. I love what he's doing with Iron Man. And when I heard he was doing Captain America, I'm like, okay, I'm going to pick it up for sure. Because um, it's Christopher Cantwell and it's Captain America. But I, I, I still have to be honest. I, As much as I thought I would like it and it would be good, I didn't expect this. This was so good. It is it, so thought-provoking and so clear that that Christopher understands Captain America on on such a basic level and he does an incredible job of conveying that it's so easy to get lost like I said in the symbolism and and Steve Rogers says it himself about how his him uh, Captain America as a symbol as an idea is so easily corrupted and used by the wrong people to send the wrong message 
And it's clear that Christopher Cantwell knows what the right message is. And I love the voice he gives Steve Rogers to explain it so simply, Um, you know, with here I am talking on and on about it, um, trying to convey the same idea um, when Cantwell does it so succinctly in the issue. So you need to be picking this up. I think it's a six issue mini. Um, And so first issues out and uh, it gets my highest possible recommendation it's absolutely fantastic. And then, like I said, the, the second story by Josh Trujillo just gives the, uh, the origin of Aaron Fisher, and it's it's very much worth your time. Loved it. So good. Uh, yeah, just just absolutely amazing. Uh, all right, that does it for the Marvel books. Um, next book I'll talk about is from Aftershock. It's Undone by Blood or The Other Side of Eden, issue number four. It's the final issue uh, of the second volume of... Um, of Undone by Blood. It's by Lonnie Nadler and Zach Thompson. Art is by Sammy Cavella. Colors are by Jason Wordy. Letters are by Hassan Otsman Elhow. Uh, I, I like the way this ended, but at the same time, it ended in a way that sort of leaves a little bit of questions. Um, and it, it just had a very different feel from the first volume. And that very well may be intentional from the, the writers. Um, and so it's not that this doesn't have a satisfying conclusion. It covers a lot of time, a lot of time in the, in the, um, the lives of the characters and everything makes sense in, in the way things go. Um, and so I give credit to Nadler and Thompson for giving us a complete story in four issues that as it's as, it's as important what we don't see and what happens between the panels and between the pages as what we actually do see on the pages. So this is one I'm going to have to go back and reread all four issues in one sitting to have a better understanding of exactly what I'm looking at. Um, but it was pretty enjoyable. It was pretty enjoyable. All that being said, uh, I'm going to go back and I'm going to reread it and I'm going to have my own ideas and conclusions about it. But I still would like to know, am I missing something? What were their intentions? Um, like, is there a director's cut where I could have a better understanding? Uh, so, yeah, pretty interesting. Um, I, I, on, I have to be honest, I didn't enjoy it as much as the first volume, which in its way also didn't necessarily have a conclusion. Uh, but I'd be very curious to see if there's another volume on the way because I think it's been optioned for a TV show. So you would think they'd want to keep uh, keep making them. Um, but it's a fascinating story structure with, you know, these Western tales that the main characters are reading uh, that sort of mirror their own, uh, their own adventures or what they're going through uh, in life. So I think it works very, very well. Uh, next book I'll mention from Image, Made in Korea, story uh, issue number two, story by Jeremy Holt, art by George Shaw, letters by Adam Woolett. Uh, I like the first issue. Second issue is even better. Um, it the first issue sort of presented us with some some really sort of out there ideas on what it means to be human and uh, what happens in the future if the human race becomes infertile and basically there's uh, this Korean company that sort of makes fake kids um, 
and we learn that one of the uh, employees of that company comes up with this idea to make a better version, right? Like he's making the, the T1000 version <laughs> as opposed to the T100 uh, and wants to test it out in, in, in real life. And so sends it to a couple who ordered one of the, uh, the norm, normal robots or androids or synthetics or whatever you want to call them that are very much like, they're just like pets, right? They're just like a, you know, Tomodachi or whatever they're called, the little uh, pets that you would take care of, the digital pets. It's just like that, but come to life. Um, but this one is is very intelligent and much more advanced. And uh, and again, he he he's trying to sort of turn back the clock in a different way, but obviously a very dangerous way uh, as well. So in this issue, we start to see some of the consequences and the fallout of what may happen to this. Uh, this little girl, this synthetic or Android or robot or whatever you want to call her um, because she is so uh, advanced. So uh, we go in from, in that first issue, these big esoteric ideas uh, to the second issue, having it be much more grounded, having it feel much more real and, and starting to see, see some real life consequences of, of what could happen. When, because this little girl is trying to to integrate herself into society and um yeah it, it's just fascinating plus the character of jesse this this little android girl um as you would expect she's pretty naive and she's pretty trusting uh and I, i'm curious to see her evolution beyond just the, the simple intelligence of having like a computer mind so uh it's the first thing i've read by jeremy holt and I haven't heard a lot of people talking about it, but I think the first issue sold out, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and rightfully so, because it's a really, really great story, very much worth your time. And the George Shaw art is pretty simple, simple art, light backgrounds, but definitely works for the story that's being told. Uh, all right, on to the last book I'm going to talk about. It's another image book. This is my other book of the week, the 1B, if you will. It's crossover number seven. It's from writer Chip Zdarsky. Uh, the letters are the, sorry, the, the pencils are by Phil Hester, inks by Andy Parks, letters by D. Cuniff, and letters and design by John J. Hill. Um, this issue, as I've come to expect from Chip Zdarsky, is very emotionally charged. Now, we know the whole idea of crossover is supposedly in the quote-unquote real world where superheroes don't exist. There was a big rent in reality and all these superheroes came pouring out in Denver and eventually the powers that be put a big dome over it and said, you know, do not trespass, do not enter. Um, and they just let the superheroes and supervillains fight. And once in a while, one of the, these uh, come to life superheroes will show up in the regular world and they're shunned and, and whatever, but it's very much an action packed over the top love letter to comics from creator Donnie Cates. Um, in this issue, what we have is we have a situation where Chip Zdarsky is giving us the, can I put this? He's giving us the emotional counterpoint to that sort of action packed fun story. Right. Like we're thinking of it. Hey, this is a great 
comic book story. It's really cool, and it does all these interesting things. And it's very meta, right? And that's the the word that is is being used, metatextual, uh, because you get mentions of of real characters and real or, or real people, I guess, as characters in the book. And and this one, Chip Zdarsky himself shows up, and he's writing himself as a fictional person on multiple levels, but in an emotional way where we start to feel and see that there's real impact, real people are being impacted by this event in Denver. It's not just this, Hey, this is a really cool, big comic book event, like a summer crossover event. Um, and everything is just fun and lighthearted and, everybody you know kind of survives and they're back for the next issue or whatever no the the story that zadarsky gives us is basically showing that there's real life impact there's real um fallout for the the events that have happened in the world of crossover and he, he does it in a really great self-deprecating way that feels very realistic and it also feels very meta and it feels very much like chip zadarsky and i i also give chip a lot of credit for being brave enough to do some sort of self-analysis here because he even talks a little bit in here as himself talking about the doubts and fears and um, kind of self-analyzes. And it's all done for the most part tongue in cheek, but there's some truth to what he's saying in there. And again, I think it takes a a special kind of person and a special kind of writer to pull it off. So uh, kudos to Donnie Cates, the usual writer and Jeff Shaw, the usual artist for handing over the reins of this book to this creative team to tell this story for this one issue, because it was absolutely fantastic. And if you only can afford to buy one book this week, make it United States of captain America, but if you can buy two, the second one needs to be crossover. It has been an absolute blast since issue one. uh, And it's only getting better as we, move along here with this uh, issue seven from Chip Zdarsky, uh, Phil Hester, Andy Parks and company. So I definitely recommend uh, checking out crossover number seven. Uh, All right. Well, let me give a rundown on some of the other books you might want to be on the lookout for Uh, over at aftershock. We have girls of dimension 13, number three Um, continuing that story, which has been a whole heck of a lot of fun. Uh, Bad Idea has ENIAC number four, which finishes off that series. Very excited to check that out. We've got a new Buffy series over at Boom, Buffy the Vampire Slayer Tea Time number one. Dune House of Atreides number eight of 12 is out as well. We Only Find Them When They're Dead number seven from uh, Al Ewing is also out. Uh, We talked about all the DC books, and I mentioned there's not a whole lot of them, but we did talk about them on uh, yesterday's spotlight episode so go check those out if you're curious uh catwoman 2021 annual number one green arrow 80th anniversary 100 page spectacular number one teen titans academy 2021 yearbook number one and then uh collecting all those uh, digital infinite frontier secret files uh stories we have the infinite frontier secret files number one one shot uh, that's out today as well over at IDW Canto and the city of giants, number three of three to finish off that story. And I think that's the final Canto story, if I'm not uh, mistaken uh, at image department of truth, number 10 from James Tynan and Martin Simmons 
dealing with Bigfoot, pretty solid issue. Um, there's a lot of text in there, like handwritten text, and I didn't get a chance to pour over it like I wanted to, so that's the reason I didn't talk about it in depth. I need to go back and reread it a second time, but that's been a really great uh, series. We also have Two Moons Number 5. Uh, I know Jay is a big, chan uh, big fan of that. Uh, over at Marvel, in addition to the books I talked about, Beta Ray Bill, number four of five. There's a Black Cat Annual, number one, which ties into that Infinite Destinies storyline with uh, the new version of the Infinity Stones, I guess you'd call it. But I read it, and it's by Jed McKay, and it's good, and it, it feels like Jed McKay's Black Cat series, from what I understand. I haven't read much of the Black Cat series. And so I did feel like the characterization on Felicia Hardy was a little light. But the other thing that I really didn't understand is, so it ties in with Infinite Destiny, but we didn't even see anybody, like the Infinity Stones aren't even mentioned or brought up. We didn't meet a new wielder of the stone, at least not one that was obvious. So I'm like, I'm not sure where that's going. So I, I didn't want to talk about it because I, I, I'm just not sure. Um, Eternals number five from the ongoing is also out for Marvel. Shang-Chi number two from the ongoing is out. Uh, and then X-Factor 10, uh, I'll mention, which finishes up the uh, Hellfire Gala storyline, which is supposed to be a pretty uh, important issue. So I, I may have to pick that up, even though I'm, I'm behind on my, uh, my X-Men reading. Uh, all right, I'll also mention over at Vault, and I don't, I don't unfortunately get Vault previews. I really wish I did. Barbaric number one from Michael Morisi is out uh, this week, and... From what I understand, it's an absolutely fantastic story, and I'm not even really sure what it's about, um, other than it's Michael Morisi doing uh, like a barbarian story with art by Nathan Gooden. So definitely looking forward to checking that out, and I'll, I'll be sure and let you guys know what I think. So uh, anyway, that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, hope you all enjoyed it. As always, really appreciate you guys joining me and supporting the comic source. So Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.